invite your attention tonight to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we've been in a series of messages called uh, Little Children Need to Know. Little Children Need to Know. And tonight it's about the last hour. Verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Uh, John repeatedly uses that expression, little children. And there are things then that he would go on and follow that up with so that we would understand these are things that God wants his little children to know. And uh, tonight uh, we might not uh, have thought about very much about talking to children or talking to our young, uh, but it's not just always little children in age. Uh, but I've come to think there's kind of a little child inside of all of us. Doesn't matter how old we get, that uh, child is still there. You know, I I don't feel a whole lot different than I did a long time ago. And I always used to tell my mama, I don't mind getting older if I don't have to grow up. Does anybody else identify with that sentiment? Um, there's a little child in all of us. All of us, all God's children need to know. And one of the things we need to know about is the last hour. Now, if you're my age or older, you grew up hearing a whole lot about what we call the last days, end times, preaching. You've heard a lot of that. Uh, we uh, associate the term the last hour, and rightly so, with the second coming of Jesus Christ, with the day of the Lord, with the millennial reign, and ultimately ushering in the new heaven and the new earth where the Bible says dwelleth righteousness. Uh, we know about that. We've created some words over the years in order to describe these things. It's not a bad thing. It's just what we've done. Uh, the Bible talks about how that we'll live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. We call that the millennial reign. Now, if you search for the word millennial in the New Testament, you're not going to find it. Uh, but that's what we call it. It's a thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, the fact that God's people will be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, there's a Greek word in there that uh, we kind of transliterated into English. That caught up together became the word rapture. If you do a search, I've told you before on the word rapture. You're not going to find that in the New Testament. But what is it referring to? It's referring to that time when we're going to be caught up. The believers in Christ will be caught up raptured and we will meet the Lord in the air. I want to give you another one of those terms that we have used, coined, if you will, in order to describe biblical truth. And it is the doctrine we call eminence. The doctrine of eminence. And what that means is that since Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, God's people have lived ever since in anticipation of His return. And they lived then under the promise of His return. You remember when Jesus ascended up into the clouds? If you would have been there that day, what would you have been doing? <laughs> Watching Him go. And you remember the angel came to Him and gave Him the message. You know, the same Jesus is going to return. Why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? 
And immediately they received this promise. Jesus was coming. He told them. Uh, He gave them that information several times. I go and prepare a place for you, John chapter 14, perhaps most famously. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to restore you, uh, to, uh, to bring you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The last question the disciples apparently asked Jesus was, uh, Hey, is it time? Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? These passages and many, many others would indicate to us that Jesus gave his followers a promise of his return. And they lived in anticipation of that return. Here's a couple more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These people at Thessalonica had heard the gospel. They had turned to God from their idols. They had repented from their idolatry. They had turned and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they learned? To wait for the Son from heaven. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. Now later Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica, the same one that he commended because they had turned to God from idols and and served the living and true God and were waiting for His Son from heaven. Then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he gave them this warning, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So when the church at Thessalonica began to be somewhat obsessed, I guess we could say, with the return of Christ, Paul pointed out to them there were some things that would happen first. The man of sin would be revealed, there would be a falling away, And so there was something to look for as they were waiting. But it didn't mean that Paul didn't believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Later on, he would, he would also write, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, or earlier he would write, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain. We. Paul was expecting to go out with a shout, folks. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 
And so while there were some things to look at and anticipate, it's very clear that Paul was living his life in anticipation of the return of Christ. Here we sit a couple of centuries, a millennia later, a couple of thousand years almost later, and Jesus still hasn't returned. Were all those folks wrong? Uh, would we look and say, well, you know, Israel had to be gathered as a nation in 1948 before Jesus could come. Well, this had to happen. Well, that had to happen. That's where the doctrine of imminence comes in. You see, the doctrine of imminence says that Jesus promised his imminent return and that all of his people could rightly anticipate his return at any moment. From our perspective, we look back and say, well, it didn't happen. No, it didn't. Aren't you glad in a way that it didn't? If Jesus would have come a couple of thousand years ago, you and I would have never been born. This whole thing would have already wrapped up. They'd go into millennia. We'd have been left out. I'm, I'm glad I've had the chance to live. And I don't know, I've said that before. That doesn't change the promise that Jesus made to his people. And in confidence and expectation of that promise, they could live their lives thinking that Jesus might come, could come in their lifetime. I bring all that up to you tonight just to talk about our text. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, where John very confidently, very explicitly says, little children, it is the last hour. Not just the last days, or the last day, but the last hour of the last day of the last days. He wrote this a long, long time ago. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour. It's very possible, in fact probable, that John had Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians in mind when he confidently proclaimed that it is the last hour and the presence of the Antichrist influences in the world was what proved that to him. After all, Paul had said to them that the man of sin would be revealed before Christ came. And John could look around and see many Antichrists already at work. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But it's important for us tonight to understand, understand that in God's timetable, we have been living in the last days ever since Jesus died and arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Yes, generations have lived and died looking for the return of Christ without seeing it, but that does not in any way diminish its truth. Second Peter, uh, we find Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also, and all the works that are in, in it therein, shall be burned up. We live in the last hour. John tells us that. 
And the fact that we've been living in the last hour for a couple of thousand years is not something that should be intimidating to us. Simon Peter said, the day of the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Since we are then living in this last hour, there's some things that God's children need to know. Things we need to learn about. And there are three things that John tells his children they need to know about since we are living in the last hour. The Antichrist, the anointing, and the abiding. The Antichrist, the anointing, and the abiding. We begin with the first, the Antichrist. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest, and none of them were of us. You can see the similarities between what John says in this passage and what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He warned them of the coming of the man of sin, the son of perdition, and of a falling away. So what does John talk about? You've heard that many antichrists, that the antichrist must come, and that there would be a falling away. And he said these things are indications to us then that we are, in fact, living in the last hour. And the first thing that he wants us to know about then is this antichrist. This speaks of a specific person. This is his title. Though he carries many names in Scripture, he's called the man of sin. Um, One preacher reminded us that this whole thing began with the sin of man, and it's going to end up with the man of sin. It's kind of intriguing how that works out. He's called the beast in the Revelation. He's referred to as the son of perdition. When humanity first turned to sin and turned away from God, it quickly turned into an orchestrated system. We learned about last Sunday night because it's called the world. That orchestrated, coordinated, ruled over by Satan system that is against Christ, anti-Christ. Against the Scripture, anti-Scripture, anti-God. It propels and promotes the kingdom of man. And it is going to culminate in that last person who would be identified by man's number, John says in the Revelation. And that number is 666. The number of man, six in Scripture. Six three times would tell us that it has been raised to the epitome. What man has always plotted for and schemed for. It started all the way back in the Tower of Babel when they decided to build a tower so they could get to heaven without a Savior, without anything from God. Do it their own way. Finally, it's going to all come to a point, a pinnacle. And that pinnacle is going to be this man, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast. He will rule over man. One world kingdom. So that there would be political superiority. Religious superiority. He'll tolerate no one to worship anyone but himself. And economic control all wrapped up into one. 
such a man and such a kingdom doesn't appear out of thin air. It's not like such a thing is going to happen. One day it's not there, and the next day we wake up and the world's been taken over. That's not, I don't think, the way it's going to happen. Such a thing would require a rise to power on a world stage. Daniel tells us this man will obtain the kingdom by flatteries, that he will enter peaceably and establish a covenant, a peace treaty with the land of the people of Israel. Perhaps John understood there was a certain ambiguity about this rising man of sin. And if you've been around the study of Bible prophecy very long, you'll know that there's some ambiguity. Even among the experts, even among the people who've devoted their life to studying this, they've, they've always had a little trouble trying to figure out the Antichrist. I remember when the Antichrist was Henry Kissinger. Do y'all, anybody else here remember that? Just about every president we've had ever since has been called the Antichrist by somebody. Uh, all kinds of political and world leaders have been suggested over the years and arguments have been made and in a, a, a mountain of paper has been used and, and a fountain of ink has been spilled trying to prove who the Antichrist was. John said, well, you've heard the Antichrist is coming. But he says what? There are many Antichrists. What was he saying? He was saying that this spirit is already operational in the world and we see it. And we know it's out there. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What did Paul write about it? Verse 6. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. That's the man of sin. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And so Paul would tell us very plainly this mystery of lawlessness, this antichrist influence and spirit is already at work. It was work then. Folks, it's working overtime in our world today. Is everywhere. You say, where is all of this plotting and scheming and division and anger and hatred and all this crazy stuff that people are coming up with? Where is it coming from? Folk, there's a fountain that runs straight from the pits of hell. It is orchestrated by the devil himself. It is the spirit of Antichrist. John said it's already at work. We see it everywhere. He saw it then. We still see it today. The mystery of lawlessness. But that's not all of the story. Because Paul tells us there's something that is holding that back. And that something is the mighty Spirit of God. He works in His churches and He works in His people in the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of His word. You think this world is bad. Shut every church down and every preacher down and take every Christian out and see what you've got. Let this thing turn loose. See how fast it moves. One day that's going to happen, folks. And so Paul says, this is already at work. It's already working. John saw it too. And he was absolutely determined to make sure that God's little children knew about this Antichrist influence. Sadly, one of the places that it was going to show up 
was in the falling away. John could see that this mystery of lawlessness was being influential. And he was seeing it even among those who had named the name of Christ. Even among those who were members of churches. Even among those who claimed to be Christians or claimed to be followers of Christ. And yet John says they went out from us because they were not of us. They didn't lose their salvation, folks. They never had it to begin with. And because they were living a lie, they were proclaiming themselves to be a Christian when they weren't. They were proclaiming themselves to be a believer when they weren't. They were proclaiming to be a follower of Christ, but they weren't. Because they were living a lie, they were ripe to be deceived by the devil and his influence. And that's exactly what was happening then, and that is exactly what is still going on today. And the fact that there is a falling away as people who claimed the faith but would abandon the faith, and because there is this deceptive demonic influence, the Antichrist spirit in the world, John says, we know, we know that we're living in the last hour. We need to raise our children to understand and we need to remind ourselves that this world is under the influence of the spirit of lawlessness. Isn't that an interesting word? The mystery of lawlessness is already operating. That it will show up in a lot of places, even in the church. And when it shows up in the church, it will show up as people who deny the faith they once held dear. And unfortunately, when people leave the faith, they don't just leave. They do everything they can to take everybody else with them they can get to go. You need to know about the Antichrist. Then little children need to know about the anointing. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So John draws a very quick contrast then between those who are under the influence of the Antichrist already and who are showing that by their falling away to those who have an unction, an anointing from the Holy One. One of the things that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit is in John 16 and 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. John says, you have an unction, an anointing from the Holy One of God. And because you're a believer, you see the mighty Spirit of God lives in you. And so all of this false doctrine and all of this false teaching and all of this anti-God and anti-Christ influence, all of this effort that is being made to lead you away from the truth, 
there's something inside of you that's greater. And that's the power of the Spirit of God. You have an anointing from the Spirit that guides you into all truth. And so he goes on to say in verse 24, Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. Now, what John is, is speaking of when he says you don't need somebody to teach you, he's not saying you don't need teachers. If you didn't need teachers, then God wouldn't have called people like me and others to be pastor teachers. Uh, uh, the very fact that he's still doing that is indication that we need teachers. Uh, what he's talking about is there are times when we might uh, uh, get a little bit bored with the old, old story. I've heard all this before. I need somebody who's got some new ideas, maybe, we might get to thinking. I need somebody who can tell me something a little different. But that's not what we need at all. And he's already so clearly identified that Jesus Christ is the standard. That we still preach that same old story. And I don't find that intimidating at all. That I'm still preaching the same thing that my great-grandfather preached when he preached. I'm not a bit ashamed to be able to say that I'm still preaching the same things you've heard preachers preach your whole life. That's not a bad thing. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ never changes. But at the same time, folk, in the Word of God, there is an inexhaustible supply of truth. There's more than we can learn in one lifetime. So we never learn. We never get to where we can say, well, I've mastered this. I don't need to learn anything else. Uh -uh. <laughs> it's not because everything is changing all the time like it is out in the world. You know, you learn a computer program one week and you've got to learn it again next week. That's not the way it is with God. It's just that He gave us so much from the beginning. There's so much to Him and so much to His Word. And we can learn and learn more all the time and we're not learning bad things because we're turning away from that to something else. But Instead, we have that abiding in us that is teaching us and leading us into all truth. We don't need to listen to deceivers who are trying to convince us that things are true that aren't true. It doesn't matter how good a guy sounds. Listen, if he is wrong on Jesus and wrong on the gospel, his motive is not right. You remember that. If he's wrong on Jesus and if he's wrong on the gospel, there's no way. You say, oh, he's sincere. No, he's not. He's wrong on the gospel. He's wrong on Jesus. And that Spirit of God that is in you will tell you that. For all of us, but especially for our young, the little children in age, there's never been a generation in history that has had such an orchestrated, massive assault launched against the truth. And that is true simply because of our connectivity. 
This is hard for some of you younger folks to realize, but there was a time when if I wanted to do research, I had to go to a place called a library and read and look up stuff in an encyclopedia and go to a thing called a Dewey Decimal System and start looking up and then go to a section where there was this book and that book and then you had to actually read it. It took a long time to find out stuff. You have more information at the tip of your fingers all the time, carried around in your pocket all the time. It would have taken me, it would have taken your grandfather, your great-grandfathers, it would have taken them a lifetime to find out what we can find out in only a few minutes. Our connectivity then makes it possible for us to be influenced in an incredible way. And we are. We face an array of media, of entertainment, of education and political agendas that fuel a multi-billion dollar propaganda campaign. They watch what you read. Don't think they don't. They watch what you listen to. They watch what you watch. They carefully record what you click on, what gets your attention and what your interests are. And they control then the information that you get on the basis of what they see you do. The devil's always been that way. It's just now he's got this tool where it is so massively available to us. There's never been a generation in history that needed the unction of the Holy Spirit of God like we need it. Because the Holy Spirit of God, the anointing that is in us, He is the Spirit of truth. And there'll be times when you'll be hearing something and they'll say, man, that don't seem right. Don't quelch that. It may very well be the Spirit warning you. We have an unction of the Holy One. And we need that anointing and that guidance today as never before. John wants to talk to his little children then about the Antichrist. And then he talks to them about the anointing. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit. We live in a day where the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Thank God that the anointing power of the Holy Spirit of truth is also at work. Lastly, there's the abiding. Now little children, verse 28, abide in Him. You see, the now in this passage refers us back to what he had just said. Little children, it's the last hour. And now, little children, it's time for abiding in Christ. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. When we are saved, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And when John then tells us in this passage to abide in Christ, it does not mean that we can somehow be in Christ and then be taken out of Christ. Uh, Jesus said very plainly, my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He told us that we are in His hand and He's in the Father's hand. I call that situation having the situation well in hand. No man, He said, can pluck them out of my hand. We are in Christ. It will never be out of Christ. But instead, to abide in Christ refers to the sphere of our living. 
The sphere of what we have learned, to abide in what we've learned. We learn more than about the Word. We, we learn more by experience. We live our lives and conduct ourselves on that basis. Earlier in this same book, John had said, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, in a world of no limits... And we live in that world. We need a good boundary. We need good boundaries. Boundaries are not a bad thing altogether. We might think they're awful. But not always. We need some good boundaries. We talk about keeping it between the lines. <laughs> uh, if you're driving down the highway and you get out of the lines, you know, something bad going to happen to you pretty quick. We need to learn how to operate within the sphere then that God has given us. And that sphere is the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done. See, the world is trying very hard to move us away from that. I'll just forget about all that quaint ideas and all those uh, foolish thinking, no, 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 just get away from that. No. We live in the last hour. We live in a time when the mystery of lawlessness is working and operating and it's working overtime. And y'all said amen to that because it's true. We know it. We can see it. The Antichrist's influence is strong in the world. It may very well be and probably is leading up right now to the coming of the man of sin. Chew on that a little while. The establishment of a world kingdom. Give that a little thought could be happening in times like ours John gives us simple instruction you abide in Christ don't let people push you away from him don't let people lead you away from the truth that you've learned that is in him Jesus Christ has set us an example that we should what walk in his steps Keep it between lines. Oh, but we got a new way of thinking these days, yeah. Abide in Christ. Oh, but there's a lot. We've learned a lot more these days, yeah. yeah, yeah. You think Jesus didn't know it? <laughs> I mean, my goodness. You think we're discovering things that God didn't know? Uh, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. In times like this, we need to know. In the last hour, we need to know. We need to know about the Antichrist. We need to know about the anointing. And we need to know about abiding in Christ. Let's stand.